From the moment she walked into Henry's court, Jane entered another world. It was a world of complete opulence, a world in which everything that could make life more comfortable and more pleasurable was abundantly provided. The king demanded only the best. His palaces were richly furnished. His plate was silver, gilt, or even gold. At night, the twinkling flames from hundreds of candles, firmly secured into the branches of gilt candelabra, glowed against the wooden panelling or brought alive the deep colours of the priceless tapestries that adorned so many walls. The evening suppers comprised course after course. Venison, veal, lamb, peacock, quail, heron, pigeon, turbot, salmon, bream, anything could appear. Perhaps flavoured with exotic spices like pepper, mace, nutmeg or saffron. By day there could be hunting, jousting, tournaments. After supper, the haunting melodies of Henry's musicians could fill the air, or there could be dancing, or even a mask or pageant to delight the eye. Amid all of this moved the rich, the famous, the glamorous, resplendent in bright, stylish garments, glinting with precious stones. Jane was barely given time to take it all in, perhaps even less than a year before she was on the move. This was not unusual. The court was not fixed in one place. Its personnel followed Henry from palace to palace, and he moved frequently so that each building could be thoroughly cleaned to reduce the threat of disease. This move, though, was entirely different. It happened in June 1520 and was across the channel to the English port of Calais. Cardinal Thomas Wolsey, Henry's chief minister, had arranged for his master to meet the French king Francis I for a series of discussions that took place near the town of Guine, about five miles south from Calais. To please both monarchs, these talks were conducted in style and splendor, such style and splendor that the whole event came to be known as the Field of Cloth of Gold, and Jane traveled with her king. She was, of course, not alone. Since they were bitter rivals, neither Henry nor Francis wanted to be upstaged by the other. Thus, they were accompanied by their queens, by the most important people of their kingdoms, and by an army of servants and attendants. In fact, Almost 6,000 men and women were assembled from each side. The sheer logistics of transporting them, let alone housing and feeding them, was a nightmare. Luckily for Henry, Wolsey was the perfect man for the job. He oversaw absolutely everything to do with the meeting and had engineered the talks in the first place. This was no mean feat. The English nobles were never happier than when fighting their traditional enemy. Henry shared their enthusiasm. Since he always believed himself the rightful king of France and felt fully justified in using the title, even though the only French land England possessed was the port of Calais and the area around it, persuading him to these talks required all of Wolsey's filed tongue and ornate eloquence. And Henry was determined to put on a first-rate show. His England might be the smallest of the big three powers compared to the dominions of Francis and Catherine's nephew Charles V, King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor, but it was civilized, cultured, and sophisticated. He would prove it. 
In Gwyn, a temporary palace had been built for the king. Preparations for the king's reception had been underway for weeks. The Lord Chamberlain and officers of the wardrobe carefully draped the ceilings of the rooms with silk. Cloth of gold or silver was bought by the yard and used lavishly, as was silver damask and black velvet, yellow velvet, crimson velvet, that the stunning French pavilion, a patently fragile structure of gold brocade, its ceiling decorated with stars of gold foil, was dismantled after four days because of the wind and rain was especially gratifying to the chauvinistic English. Their palace stayed up despite the weather. Never one to waste an opportunity, Wolsey managed to find time to talk with French clergy and ambassadors, while Henry and Francis resolutely threw themselves into the serious business of entertaining each other during the two and a half weeks or so that the meeting lasted. They jousted, banqueted, performed in elaborately costumed masks, and once had an ostensibly playful wrestle, which to Henry's chagrin, Francis won. They even managed to squeeze in some political discussions, talking inevitably in a golden tent. Jane's senses reeled from being a part, even an unimportant part, of what was being thought of as an extraordinary occasion. She also had fun. At one banquet, given by Catherine for Francis, while Henry was feasted by the French Queen Claude, Francis insisted on kissing all of Catherine's ladies, except for four or five whom he considered old and not fair. So Jane, who was still less than 20 years of age and certainly good-looking, was kissed by a king. <laughs>